Good morning. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning to the rest of you. It's for your patience here. Open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I hope you're enjoying this series. Excited to be back in this book. I'm enjoying this series. The speakers are enjoying this series. So encouraging. So challenging. And the heart of the elders... The heart of the elders and our, our vision for what GAC can be, what, what we want GAC to be, is seen in this book in so many ways. In so many ways. Uh, you heard a message last week, those of you who were here from KT. I could sense his burden. Burden for what we strive to become. In many ways we are. In many ways we are, but we're always striving to become a church that walks worthy of the gospel, as Paul says in this book. So, we're going to start by reading Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And then I'll pray, and then we'll some opening comments and get into this part of Scripture. So, reading along with me, I'm reading in the ESV, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray now. Father, these words of Scripture are strong and powerful. We thank you for them. I simply pray your blessing upon us this morning that what I say would be faithful to the words of this text. You'd be with our teachers downstairs as well, that what they say would be faithful to your word and that it would benefit the hearers. We pray that you'd show us what you would have us to do. So clear and yet so difficult to apply what the scripture says in our world, and yet we ask that you would enable us to do, to do just that. As individuals here, with families and friends, and as a, as a collective body, one body, one church family, that you would help us to strive to submit to your word, submit to the truths found in this book, and that you would be honored by it, that you'd be pleased with it, and that you would bless us as a result of it. Lord, I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I mentioned walking worthy of the gospel. You remember when Paul says that at the end of... Chapter 1 of this book, let's backtrack with me briefly through the paragraphs of this letter that we've covered. We open up, and Paul shares his heart for the Philippians. He's clearly close to them. He feels strongly about them. And unlike in some other cases, he's not primarily frustrated or upset or corrective towards them. He simply yearns for them, and he prays for them that their love would abound, 
And that as a result of that abounding love, they'd be able to approve what is excellent. And it said other things too. From there, Paul becomes an example to them of what it looks like in the next in the couple of paragraphs that follow. You remember Joel Kay spoke. Paul's in prison, of course, when he writes this letter. And in that paragraph, he's giving an update. He says, I'm in prison, but despite his sad circumstance, he's joyful. Because all he really cares about is that the gospel's being preached. And, ironically, he was in prison to stop the spread of the gospel, but his imprisonment just becomes gunpowder for the spread of the gospel. It emboldens everyone, some for right reasons, some for wrong reasons. The gospel's going crazy. Paul's happy about that. So he's, this is, this is what approving what is excellent looks like. He's choosing as his priority, not his interests, but the interests of other people who get to hear the gospel. From there, he reflects on his future. This is Luca's message. Paul finds himself at a decision point of sorts. He knows God's in control of his future. He knows that. But he talks like a decision lays before before him. He could die and finally be with Christ. After all these years of struggle, it could be over. The struggle could be over forever. And he could be with his Savior. Obviously, a lucrative option. But... The problem with that is that Paul loves the Philippians, and he's convinced that if he stays on earth, he'll be able to minister to them even more, and that it would benefit them. So he decides that. He decides that is what would be best. Again, he has some options. He approves of what is excellent. He chooses the interests of the Philippians over his own interests. It would have been better for him if he could have been with Christ. He didn't choose that. He says at the end of chapter 1 to the Philippians that, like Paul, they need to have a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. 127. To strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. They need to work hard at this so that they finish what is before them. Finish the race and finish it well together, if you will, which is a a phrase we've repeated. And then in Philippians chapter 2... He's saying, here's how you do that. Here's how you do that. Last week's message from KT, amid scandalous impersonations of the other elders, which I will get back at him for at some point, just as soon as you forget that it happened. I pull it out. You remember, though, unity, like-mindedness, No behavior whatsoever that comes from selfish ambition. Instead, humility. Others-centeredness. Keep a lookout, but not just for your interests, for the interests of other people. The interests of other people. Look again at verses 3 and 4, right before before the verses we read. Because today's passage is really the second half of one paragraph. You know, as we broke up this book, try to break it up in units of thought. Well, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is one unit of thought. We thought when you preach on Philippians 2, 1 through 11, you tend to skip over the first four verses and get straight to Jesus. Like Jesus is the main point of the paragraph. Jesus is not the main point of the paragraph. Jesus is an example that serves to support the main point of the paragraph, which is in verses 3 and 4. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's it. That's the main point of the paragraph, which explains how we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, as he said at the end of chapter 1. Let each of us look to the interests of others. Now, straight into verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind is that? The mind of verses 3 and 4. The attitude. Some translations have attitude. The mindset. The abounding love that puts others in your church family first which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the ESV translation. Every version has a different translation for the last half of verse 5. I think the most accurate translation is, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, here's an example of what it looks like to do what I'm commanding you to do. When I say, have a manner of life worthy of the gospel, put others first, Here's an example of what it looks like. It won't necessarily look like this for all of you. We are not descending from heaven like Christ did. But here's an example of what it looks like to put other people first. Now, look with me at verses 6 through 8. Focus with me here. We'll work through the text, and I read, and then I stop reading and talk without telling you, and then I go back to reading. So it works best if you just keep your eyes on the text with me. There are two sections here. In verses 6 through 8, we have the lowering of Christ from his heavenly status. And then in verses 9 through 11, the exaltation of Christ. A couple of disclaimers. First, this is not an academic discussion of Christology. What I mean by that is, there's a whole lot in this passage that says a whole lot about who Christ was and what exactly was going on when he became a human. Which is good to study, of course, but not today. Today the question is, why does Paul say this here right now? And Paul doesn't say this here now because they're lacking Christology. He says this here now for particular reasons. So if you're expecting me to answer all of those questions... Check your expectations now. Also, our focus is really going to be on verses 6 through 8. We're going to walk through verses 6 through 8, and then going to offer a challenge to you, something, to, a way to apply this even today, and then we'll close with some comments, comments on 9 through 11. But 6 through 8 is really the focus here. So, verses 6 through 8. Here's the example. Verse 6. Who, speaking of Christ... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ was in the form of God. What does this mean? Now think with me about this. First, we know whatever being in the form of God is, it must be something different from being God. Because Christ is going to give this up. The form of God, he was in, and he gives it up. Did he give up being God? No. He was God forever ago. He was God during his entire life on earth. He will be God forever into the future. That's the way it works. He's not giving up being God, but he gives up being in the form of God. The NIV translates this, being in very nature God, which I don't think is a great translation, 
The NLT says, though he was God, which is an infinitely worse translation, most have in the form of God, and the key word there is form, which comes from a Greek word that really has the idea of clothes. In fact, the word is used to talk just about clothes elsewhere. It's as if he's saying he had the clothes of God. Now, of course, there's more going on than just clothes here, but it does, it does give us an idea of what's going on. There's a difference between being God and looking like God. You understand that distinction? There's a difference between being God and looking like God. When Christ was in the form of God, he was visibly God. He was visibly glorious, publicly glorious. Not only was he God, but you could tell. You could tell. The few Old Testament examples aside, when it appears Christ appears like a normal person, many examples of Christ appearing in all the glory that comes with being God. All the glory that comes with being God. In fact, so much so, the Old Testament says many times, our eyes cannot even behold him. It's like our eyes would just fry right out of their sockets if we looked at him. That's the form of God. Then something changes. The second half of verse 6. He does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That visible public glory that Jesus had that he shared with the Father, all the blessings that came with that, the power, the joy that came with being God and in the form of God, Christ decided he was not going to hold on to that. He's not going to grasp on to that. It would have been in his self-interest to hold on to it. If he were looking out for his own interests, he would have held on to it. He decides instead to look out for the interests of others and does something else instead. Verse 7, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the phrase emptied. Emptied himself. It's a difficult concept. I think the word emptied kind of implies that something in the very essence of Jesus changes, something about his very nature that was in him falls out or is poured out. But as I've just said, that isn't true. We see clearly in Christ's life, he was in essence fully God the whole time he was on earth. I think the phrase, he emptied himself, really carries the meaning of lowering. He lowered himself. He was enjoying all the benefits of God's status and then lowered himself from that status. And the following phrases after this one describe what the lowering entails. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's that word form again. Christ was in the form of God. Then he lowered himself, set aside that form set aside those clothes, if you will, and instead took on a new form, the form of a servant, a new set of clothes. Now notice it says he doesn't take the form of a human. It says he takes the form of a servant. A servant. The verse is coming, the phrase is coming, we'll mention that he was in the likeness of men. He was indeed a human. But understand, Christ didn't go from God status to elite human status. That would have made sense. 
Yes. It'd still be a huge step down from being God and in the form of God to being a person on earth. At the very least, he'd be the ruler of the earth, right? At the very least. No. That's not the form he takes. He takes the form of a servant. He comes not to be served, but to serve. So even in the lowering, he's on the lower end. The lower end of the status change. He washes his disciples' feet as an example to them of what it looks like to be a servant. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men, which simply means he looked like every other, every other guy. If Jesus were in a crowd, like I'm looking at you, this crowd today, he could be Zach, he could be Bruce, could be KT. There's nothing that would set him apart. He's in the likeness of men. Looks like a normal person. Verse 8, being found in human form, that is, being seen visibly, publicly, as a human, that looks like all the other humans. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now that phrase is key here to what, to the point Paul is making to the Philippians, to the Philippians. When Paul says Christ humbled himself, what he's saying is, Not just that he lowered his status, but he took pains to make his lower status public and evident to everybody watching, to everybody watching. It's about, it's like a social thing. Remember with me, Luca explained this in his passage on chapter one, a bit about Roman culture. Philippi, we've mentioned, is a Roman city. They're a proud Roman city. These believers live in a culture obsessed with status, obsessed with status. It's hard to make the parallel to our present day. Of course, we have different statuses and socioeconomic status, but it's not nearly as obvious as a caste system or the Roman system from the first century. They're proud of their status in Philippi as a Roman town. They knew what it meant to be elite. The social structure equated status with honor. If you have the title, the status, you are an honorable person. doesn't have much to do with action. If you don't have the status, if you're part of the lower status groups, you don't go around bragging about that. It's nothing to be proud of. You maybe don't even want people to know. And with that in mind, because Paul knows the Philippians have that in mind, he says, look here. Christ made his servant status public to everyone. He did it himself. He humbled himself. No one did it to him. The word even carries the meaning of embarrassment. Like he intentionally humiliated himself or embarrassed himself in front of everybody. How? We read on in the verse. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what those two phrases do are bring bring Christ to rock bottom. Rock bottom. Like in the verses before it, Paul's focus here is on the what's going on that people can see. As low as it is to be a human, which is low considering where Christ came from, right? And as low as it is to be a servant among humans... Christ goes lower. He becomes obedient to the point of death. That's the degree to which he became obedient. 
different degrees of obedience, you understand? Caught Eliza doing something the other day, and she said, I didn't know you were watching. There's a degree of obedience there. There's degree issues. Wish her obedience went a further degree. There are degrees of obedience, and Christ is obedient to the nth degree, to the ultimate degree, to the point of actual death. Even, even, Paul says, even if you can believe it, death on a cross. Death on a cross. Now, of all the passages that talk about Christ's suffering, and there are many, this one, this one, is not primarily about his physical suffering, and it's not even primarily about his spiritual suffering. It's about the embarrassment, the public humiliation, the visibility of Christ's death. The cross is a slave's death. You understand? Bloody, beaten, naked, totally naked, hanging there for hours on end in a public place so as many people as can will walk by and see and see the person there. It's a picture of shame, public shame. One famous Roman writer, Cicero, wrote this about death on a cross at the time in the first century. He says, quote, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. End quote. Understand the stigma. And yet... This is where Christ has gone. He is God. He was in the form of God. And he's hanging there for everybody to see. With those verses in mind, understand this is what Paul means. When he says he wants the Philippians to be united by counting each other as more significant than themselves, this is what he means. Here's an example of what it looks like to do something in the interest of other people. To sacrifice, sacrifice your own interests for the interests of others. Christ went from divine status to human, human status, not even elite, servant human status, to the status of a virtually irrelevant crucified slave just hanging there. Just hanging there. That's what he did, and that's what I'm talking about, Paul says. Do something that looks like that. Paul will have more examples. Two paragraphs forward, he'll talk about Timothy. Everyone else was seeking their own interests, he'll say. Timothy was seeking my interests. Was seeking my interests. He'll talk about Epaphroditus, a man who decides to risk his life just to visit Paul. Because it's a dangerous journey decides not to minister to his own needs, but to minister to Paul's needs. I barely get letters, I barely get emails off to missionaries, let alone life-threatening journeys. Paul himself has already served as an example to them. He wants to keep on living so that he can minister to them. This is the mindset. This is the attitude we should have among ourselves because it was in Christ. So, you want to be able to say, like Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Do you remember what Lucas said about that? To live is Christ, because for Paul, to live means he gets to do the kind of thing that Christ did for more people. 
This is it. Are you with me? You understand the change that Christ undertook. So, even in Rome, there's Caesar, who is Lord. Makes people call him Lord Caesar. And then there's the Roman elite, the senators and the governors, who serve Caesar. And then there's the Roman military, best in the world. And then there's the regular people, the peasants, the don't-mean-anythings-to-anyone sort of people. And then there's slaves. And then there's a thousand miles of trash. And then there's slaves hanging naked on a cross. You see this difference? This stark difference. To live as Christ is something you get to say if you live like that. Getting saved doesn't mean living as Christ for us. You could get saved and live for yourself and reach the end and get into eternity, but what do you face? You face shame at the judgment seat, right? To live as Christ means to live in this way. So the question for us, the challenge, here it comes, is what have you done for others? KT said last week something we agree on. We disagree on most things, including how much we disagree on. (laughs) We agree on this. Our Christian culture has somehow devolved so that our expectations for ourselves are really very, very low. Very low expectations as individuals and as a church. The bar is so low. We think we, if we come here, we sit, we leave until next week, we're doing pretty good. The box is checked. 120 waking hours in a week, and you put in two and a half, and we feel like that's enough. And not all of us can even put in two and a half out of 120 waking hours. Here's the deal. We all want the same thing. Everybody wants verses 3 and 4 from Philippians 2. Who wouldn't want to be in a place where everybody's looking out for you? Everybody's looking out for everyone else. We all, every, every sane human being wants that. We all want that. But when it comes to thinking about what it takes to get that, we have unrealistically low expectations. Sacrifice is required. Epaphroditus sacrificed his health. Timothy sacrificed his self-concern. Paul was willing to delay heaven. Christ sacrificed everything. What are we willing to sacrifice? What is the average American Christian willing to sacrifice? 88 minutes a week? Maybe. Maybe. It's crazy. And we only apply these low standards to church community. We don't apply these low standards anywhere else. You want to get in shape physically? You have a good, realistic idea of what it's going to take. Doesn't mean you'll do it. You can work out multiple times a week, change how you eat, pay for a gym membership, pay for an app to track your calories, text your workout buddy every other day. That's what it takes to get in physical shape. Want to get good at your profession? We're willing to stay late at the office, pay the time and the money to get extra degrees or certifications licenses, sometimes literally move to a whole nother city, move our entire families for the sake of our profession. Those are realistic expectations. We want to relax. We're very willing. We're very willing to put in what we need to put in to achieve relaxation. 
There's always more time and money for another episode for entertainment, food, vacation, sports games, Starbucks. There's always more time and money. Now, in all of these endeavors, I'm saying we have realistic ideas. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying all of that's garbage. All that's true. Those are realistic expectations of what it takes to achieve those things. But when we spend 90 minutes a week at church, after two years, wonder why we don't have a deep community at church, we say, what's wrong? Well, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You can't put in the bare minimum and hope for something miraculous to happen. Now, understand, we are up against huge enemies in this. Huge enemies. As you look at our world and our culture, just like the Philippians, just like the Philippians, maybe more so, although it always seems worse when you're living in it, it seems like every part of our culture is working against this kind of community. Seems like, to me. We're grow, we grow up, we're told to pursue our dreams, do what we want, go to college for a career that will do us well, so that we'll be well set up, we'll be satisfied. We get degrees and jobs that will enable us to upgrade from the apartment to the house, to the nicer house eventually, from the trash car to the okay car, to the nicer car, to the nice, nice car. Of course, those things can be used to serve others, but my observation in myself, in the the kinds of things I take in from the culture, is that so often it is all about me. It's all about me. Add to that technology, the isolation of social media, the self-service of instant entertainment, so much easier to be entertained at home than to put any effort in to spending time with others. So many ways to make ourselves virtually unavailable. Might justify it by saying, well, God wants me to take care of myself. I need a break after work. No, God doesn't want you to take care of yourself. He wants you to take care of others, of others. Of course, there's a kind of biblical self-care Sabbath rest, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about here. It was radical for the Philippians to live as Christ lived. You understand the standard is insane. It's insane. You will never be as high as Christ was, and you'll never be asked to go as low as Christ went. We won't ever be asked to sacrifice what he sacrificed. We're in the middle here. We're in the middle here. It takes hard work, but this is the vision. This is Paul's vision for the Philippians. As he sends this heartfelt letter to them, this is what he wants for them, and this is what we want here at GAC 2. Now, it takes time, and it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. Let me recommend a starting point. Are you ready? A practical application from Joel for a change. Here's something to do. Sometime today, sit down, sit down with your spouse, sit down on your own if you're single, and look ahead at your week and find a free night 
Or maybe a night where you and your spouse, maybe the whole family, have something nice planned, something you'll enjoy. In fact, if you find a free night, go ahead and think of something that you would enjoy doing together as a family. This is step one of Joel's practical application. Are you with me? Step two, do not do that thing. Cancel that thing. Cancel that thing. And after you have wiped the tears away, step three, ask yourself, instead of what could we do that would be enjoyable for us, how could we help another church family that night? That night that is now free because you made plans but then canceled them right away to free up the night to do something for somebody else. The night's open, so... Have someone over for dinner. Do something for them. Get them a gift. Something meaningful. Take it to them. Watch a movie together. Play a game together. Offer to finish a house project together. They're funner with other people, those house projects. Now, those of you who know how much I love house projects understand the depth of that joke. Thank you for the nods. (laughs) They're not fun with other people, but they're closer to the category of fun. Now, there's not really much that is easy about this at all. It sounds simple, but it's not. You'll have to have the guts to actually do it, for starters. And then you'll have to face the fear of it being awkward, and it very well could be. It very well could be. Maybe you'll invite someone, they'll be too busy, they'll turn you down, you'll be let down because you had to rev up your courage to make that phone call. You'll be... Disappointed and tempted to say, ah, next week. Which means, which means back to the way things were. So much easier just to plan stuff for ourselves. So much easier. You must resist that temptation. Because obeying the scripture here is not optional. Now, my practical application is not scripture. I understand that. But I'm reading the same verses you're reading. I feel like my application is an easier starting point that Paul, than Paul might suggest. If he were here. So you're welcome for that. You got to do something. And here's the thing. After a few weeks of doing this, you kind of get used to the awkwardness and being let down every once in a while. And after a few months, you begin to realize that you kind of actually enjoy being around some of these people. Even though it might feel like you don't have much in common. Listen, you can always default to what you know you have in common, which is that you're part of this church family. So you can talk about Jesus or how you ended up at GAC, because we all have an answer to that question, have more in common than you think. And after a few of those conversations, it's way easier to talk to someone at break time, way easier to think about coming to that otherwise intimidating chili cookout or Super Bowl party that you're a little bit worried about. Will I have anyone to talk to? I don't know. I don't know. And understand, all this time, if you take my suggestion, not only will you be having people over, but people will be calling you to have you over. It does work much better when the give-take balance is more even. Is more even. And we pray that if we do something like this, that the Lord will bless us with the sweet, the sweet fruit, fruits of community that his spirit would build us up through one another. It's a big vision, but it can start small. Now, I do actually want you to do this. 
So whoever it is who will have the guts to bring this up later today, in the family, whichever spouse it is, you know, it's, it should be dad. Let's go, dad. Don't make the kids or mom say, so are we going to, I mean, that thing Joel said seemed kind of serious. I don't know, but he was kind of joking, but he seemed kind of serious. I'm definitely kind of serious. I want you to do it. And if you don't do it, I want you to feel guilty. (laughs) You can go home, pick apart this sermon all you want, but you take out your Bibles and you read these verses and you tell me, you tell me that this isn't the kind of thing that the verses demand that we do. Plenty of churches out there who aren't doing it, I'm sure, to choose from. But this isn't one of them. This isn't one of them. And I'm trying to be honest with you that it is hard and will cost you. Will cost you. It takes sacrifice. But let's leave with some encouragement. Let's leave with some encouragement here. Three more verses. A little bit more quickly, look at verses 9 through 11. The idea is that after the sacrifice comes the exaltation. Verse 9. Therefore, in light of what Christ did in lowering himself for others, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, that statement effectively reverses what Christ did in his self-humiliation. It's gone from the highest possible status to the lowest possible status. But now, God has chosen to give him a public, visible-to-everybody title of maximum exaltation. No longer is he a crucified slave. He's being lifted up so that, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, or as people look on him and they see the way he is now, this titled one, this exalted one, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Those phrases, just to say, his fame will be boundless. There will be no one who has not heard of him. There will be no one in the physical realm or the heavenly realm or any other realm that hasn't heard of the exaltation of this person. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Better word there would be admit. Paul's not saying everybody's going to get saved, you understand. All those beings who look upon the exalted Christ, they're not going to put their personal trust in Christ, necessarily. But they will, everyone, either willingly or by force, be unable to do anything except admit publicly, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. After the sacrifice comes the exaltation. Now, every commentator, as you read commentaries on this, they don't really know why Paul includes these verses at the end of verse 8, because it seems like he would have made his point if he'd stopped at the end of verse 8. Here's the example. That's what Christ did. I think Paul's expressing here a biblical principle. You remember places in the Bible that talk about what God does when people humble themselves or lower themselves. 
Christ says in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James says, this is probably the most popular verse, if you humble yourselves before God, he will lift you up. He will lift you up. After the sacrifice, sacrificing ourselves and our own interests and our own status for the sake of others comes reward. And so here... Paul's talking about Christ's example of sacrifice, and it makes sense that he includes the exaltation as part of it. Not because we're going to be exalted in the same way Christ was, because we won't. We won't. We didn't do what he did. But it is true that generally, after the sacrifice, comes the reward. This is what we've been hinting at almost every week. This judgment seat of Christ, we're going to answer for this at the end thing, which will explode everywhere in chapter 3 of Philippians. It actually matters. It will be worth it, in other words. It will be worth it. If we actually do this, we actually put the work in and the sacrifice in to being a Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Community, we will have run the race. And then, just as Christ sat down at the Father's right hand, when his radically sacrificial work was done, we will get to rest at the end in the presence of our Savior when our radically sacrificial work is done. And the simple truth is, if you don't work sacrificially now, there won't be much need for rest later on, later on. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this passage. I pray, as so many of us often do, that any words that are unfruitful, distant from the meaning of the text, unhelpful, would be forgotten as soon as possible, but that the truth would remain, that the Holy Spirit would make the truth stick, gnaw away at us, so that each of us can strive to live in submission to this scripture. We all need to, Lord. We all have ways to grow. I doubt there's a person in this room who has sacrificed in a way that is expected of us in the church body. Help us to give to each other, to put each other's interests first, even now as we as we split for break and then remember Christ and go about our weeks. Help us to do this continually convict us as we continue to go through this book of the need for this and that it will matter. It will matter at the end. We should strive to please you to walk in a manner worthy like the Philippians needed to, Lord. Thank you for this time. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.